Okay. The difference between samadhi and superconsciousness? Well, superconsciousness is a much, much broader phrase. And in fact, you know, we're always trying to be guided from superconsciousness, and samadhi is the state of absolute oneness with everything. So in superconsciousness, we're moving more toward that, and our inspirations are coming from that level. But you could be in a, I mean, superconscious is an English word, and therefore its meaning is imprecise. Samadhi is a Sanskrit word, and therefore its meaning is exact. So you, it, it's hard to sort of say where the line of one or the other is. When we're talking in English of superconsciousness, we're talking about that dimension of ourselves, which is above the conscious level, which moves us out into unity with the infinite. But you could be drawing from the superconscious, inspired from the superconscious, in a semi-superconscious state or in a superconscious state, without necessarily being all the way into a state of samadhi. I would just hazard a guess. I think that that's what you're working with. But sometimes when people would say they were in superconsciousness, it might have meant that they were in a state of samadhi. It's just an inexact word. But we use superconsciousness all the time to imply something much less than a state of samadhi. So whether it reaches all the way up to samadhi or not, I suppose it could. It definitely reaches way down from it to where we are. Swami's whole uh, uh, course, Superconscious Living, was in order to live in this world but do so inspired from a higher level instead of just being the subject of habit from your subconscious mind or just... uh, the mundane reality of your ordinary consciousness. Instead, let your life be guided. And what you would be saying by guided by superconsciousness would be guided by dharma, in the sense of dharma being those actions which will expand our consciousness. That's what superconsciousness would always be taking us to. And superconsciousness would always be taking us out of um, the past, which is the subconscious. It would be taking us beyond what we've already accomplished. So, but all that could happen long before you could be in a state of samadhi. Fair enough. Because he said he was in superconsciousness when he wrote his book on superconsciousness. He did. He said he entered into a superconscious state, but he'd never said that he was in samadhi when he was doing it. He might not have bothered to write, but he was in a superconscious state, which is that he was completely outside ordinary consciousness and he was drawing the energy from an infinite source, and it just flowed through him in in several different... And when he talked about um, this state, that he would go into the light when he was a young child, and then returning to that state when he was... He is Swami Kriyananda. um, When he meditated later, after he met Master, and he described that, he went into the same state of superconsciousness, and in that state no time had passed, so, you know, again, we're just dealing with English now. We don't know exactly what we're talking about. Okay. There. Any other questions or thoughts? Swami never used the word samadhi in relationship to himself. I don't believe. I could be wrong in that, but I don't think he ever used it, except talking about the past in previous incarnations when he had uh, attained sabakalpa samadhi and uh, came down from that, fell from that. But in, as Swami Kriyananda, he, he never used that word. It actually became a point of discussion after he died as to whether or not that was the mahas, his Mahasamadhi. 
And the word moksha was the happy compromise. Because <laughs> it just moved the question aside and we didn't have to really discuss it. Yeah. Because he never used the word in relation to himself. But he said that Master said he would be completely free, so you don't really have to use the word. It's right there. And I, I read something very interesting in Sister Gyanamata's uh, about Sister Gyanamata. Uh, I believe it was I believe it was Master talking at her funeral, if I'm not mistaken. Now I'm not going to be able to quote this exactly, but essentially he said she'd already had samadhi a long time ago, and she was just it wasn't a question in this life. It was just going into freedom. It wasn't necessary in her body for her to have that experience because she was already free. It was a very interesting comment because she, you know, she'd already ascended to that level and then was living. I'm not quoting it exactly accurately, but that was the sense of it and I thought it was most interesting in the light of the, trying to understand Swami Kriyananda if we're trying to understand from that level who he was. If we're trying to put a name on his state of awareness which sometimes one wants to, <laughs> in as much as he never claimed that himself. That was where the dilemma comes. Yeah. All right. So, we are now up to vibhuti padha, which Swami has translated to mean the accomplishments. I was asking Sai Ganesh about the word vibhuti, which we tend to think of as the ash that's left over after the fire ceremony. But... Um, Saiganesh was pointing out to me that that is the result of all that sacrifice is that it turns into that ash. It's the, uh, and so calling it the accomplishments, he said the word grace could also be applied. But this is, this is what's left when we've been through our sadhana. We've been through sadhana padha. And what we come down to is now is what we actually become as a result of all of this. So that means we're moving toward the conclusion of this book which eventually we will reach. I'm in no hurry, so we'll see when we get there. So, the first one, uh, three, book number three now, sutra number one, dharana is concentration, fixing one's full attention on one place, object, or idea at a time. Now, inasmuch as I myself never studied Patanjali until this one, because I could never... I could never find a way to pick it up and be interested in it, honestly. But Swamiji, um, let's see, just a moment. Oh, no, I'm actually, I was going ahead to Dharana, uh, Dhyana, I mean, that's when he really starts talking about translation, so I'm going to skip that for a moment. So he talks about here that the ability to concentrate one-pointedly is the... Um, you know, fundamental achievement required for spirituality because, as he talks about it later, um, okay, he says, um, concentration for the, is, all of us have latent within us the faculty of intuition and that can take us to the heart of a problem without reasoning in it. What he starts putting together here is concentration and intuition, which is a, it's actually very interesting to think about. We were, we were, were having some discussions in our school recently for various reasons about the word intuition and how it plays into a description of our educational system and how there's this seemingly growing awareness among more enlightened 
um, entrepreneurs and enlightened educators and people who are not just stuck in the system but are actually really trying to think about um, what people really need in our society at this time and this greater understanding of the part that intuition plays. And I know there's been a number of self-help books written about this and just this understanding that ideas are not the result of getting all our facts together in a linear way. That there's a certain point in which we, which the quality of our perception actually shifts. And it, it shifts out of accumulating data and drawing conclusions, and it shifts into direct perception. Intuition, a revelation, however you call that. And all the greatest people in any field, whether it's art or business or whatever it is, whenever they start describing their own processes, they always talk about this other factor, which is just this simple knowing. They just, at a certain point, they just know what to do. I was remembering, because Steve Jobs is such an interesting example of so many of these things, in the biography of him, when they talked about that he ought to do some market research to decide what products were needed, and his by now famous response was, People don't know what they want until I invent it. Because he had the intuition to be able to know where people were trying to go when they themselves really didn't even know where it was. And he really did. He just made one revolution after another um, and creating things that no one else could even imagine because he, he could see them. Some part of him just knew. And Swamiji talks about Dharana now here as the essential element to intuition, is that intuition is the ability to to free ourselves. Um, Intuition comes to us when our concentration has become so one-pointed that we're no no longer being lost to all these other um, distractions that just take our energy and send it in all all different directions. I was was speaking at East-West last night and the topic was uh, how to spiritualize your everyday life. And I was, I was talking rather strongly just how our, our present society, the way we're structured, it makes it exceedingly difficult to concentrate on any deeper or higher reality because everything is constantly assaulting and distracting us. The noise, the music, the nature of the music, the... Um, the advertisements, just everything. And our ability to stay focused is very, very difficult. And we, as, as people who wish to be concentrated in our, in our way of doing things, need to have to really understand that this idea of concentrating at multiple, on five different things at the same time, is, is never going to bring us to dharana. And Swamiji was very interesting because when he was concentrated on one thing, he absolutely refused to be distracted. No matter what it was, if he was doing one thing, he and I often was quite um, inappropriate in that I would interrupt him or I would try to get him to think about one thing when he was working on another. And he invariably would just completely wall me out when I tried to do that. It was like he was concentrating on this and he simply, it, it wasn't even that he was um, reprimanding me. It was that he was concentrating on this and there was no option to concentrate on anything else. And whenever anybody asked him, 
How did he manage to accomplish so much in his life? He always answered by concentration. And he always answered that when he was doing one thing, he would do it completely. And even the possibility of other things was, couldn't even enter his consciousness. As he put it, when he was working on music, he couldn't imagine writing books. And when he was writing books, he would completely forget how to write music. It would just like leave his, his, his uh, realm of consciousness because that wasn't what he was doing. If he was even reading a letter or reading an email, there was no extra conversation while he was doing it. It was 100% on exactly what he was doing. And that's where the power comes from. And as he describes it here, that's also where the intuition comes from, which is a very important factor to remember. Nishkama. Um, recently I came across some uh, apparently credible research by uh, the conventional scientific community uh, that said contrary to popular belief that it was good for the brain and naturally an achievement to uh, multi-process, as it were, uh, not only is it not good for the brain, uh, and this is the opinion of this study, but in addition, um, it, uh, there's no such thing as multi-processing. Hmm. What you're doing, you can't concentrate on more than one thing at once, and if you try to do so, you diminish the energy that you dedicate to one thing or another by the transition in between. So it's just not a good idea at all. I've certainly noticed when I'm talking on the telephone, for example, I have a long conversation. Maybe somebody is talking to me and explaining something, and I may be sitting right in front of my computer. And as soon as I click to see if I have any emails, as soon as I do that, I feel, and I know they can feel, that my attention has gone away. And when I'm talking to someone else on the phone, even if they're not saying anything, I can tell that they've opened their emails. Because <laughs> you can just feel it. You can feel that a certain amount of the energy has gone away. And it's not like you couldn't follow the train of conversation. You know, it's tempting sometimes, because sometimes people are quite chatty and you think you could do something else. I don't know. I mean, I think I can iron and cut vegetables and carry on a conversation at the same time, but I, I can't promise that I can do that. I do it, but I don't promise that I can't. Yeah. Although that way. Yeah. Even those three tasks, you could probably do a slightly better job if you did one at a time. But anything that actually takes your, really takes your concentration away, um, you feel it immediately. And, but, but what I was starting to say is that the necessity to, to have intuition for what we're doing, because see, what, what intuition does, not only does it um, put you in harmony with superconsciousness, with this what you want, does it, it also makes the product, whatever the product might be, of your labors, you know, whether it's business or art or interpersonal relationships or whatever it is, it's going to make what you're doing, you're going to do it better if you're doing it from intuition. And also it, um, I think with the, oh, you can be more efficient, you can work much faster. And that's the irony of it, you see. You think that I'm so busy I need to do several things at the same time. But understanding the relationship between one-pointed concentration, dharana, and intuition, 
And when you have intuition, you just know how things are supposed to be done. And, and literally, that was also why Swami said he could do things so fast, is that he didn't have to stop and try to reason it out. He would just look at something and just know that this is how it has to be done. When he was editing, um, uh, well, he was edit, in the last years of his life, at various occasions, I ended up um, being involved with him when he was editing something. Um, when he was editing Whispers from Eternity, for example, and uh, a couple of other projects. I just, he, would, he was working on them when we were more or less on a holiday, and then I, that's why I got involved, because I didn't, haven't done that work for him for years, but I ended up working with him. When he was editing Whispers from Eternity, he just said, he just knew. He, would just, he just went just line by line like this, and he, he didn't have to go back over it. I mean, it was one of the few books he ever did where he, he reviewed it, but very lightly, and he reviewed it only to make sure he hadn't uh, inadvertently created contradictions within a poem or something like that. But he just commented that he didn't, himself didn't know where it was coming from, but, but he could just go line by line and know exactly what needed to be changed. And that's, you know, what we're all trying to do, is both to be productive and, and effective, both. Yes? So I often feel that the first item on my job description is to be interruptible. Mm. And, um, and so I, I frequently have days where I don't feel like I can do anything all in one go because things happen and I start something and something else interrupts and, and it's just one thing to the next. And I feel to a great extent, at least, it's kind of built into my job. Right. Um, what well, do you recommend for somebody who it, kind of feels like in that It's situation? very difficult for a manager to have private projects because his primary project has to always be supporting the people who are working for them. So you're, you're actually not being interrupted. You're interrupting your job by trying to do something on your own at your desk. <laughs> I mean, in, in truth, that, that is really because you're right. You have to be... You know, in your position as a, essentially a hands-on location-specific manager of a large, complicated enterprise with a lot of people in it, the, the job that you have is those people. And, and so there is nothing you can do about that. It's just that in the five minutes you have, you know, the question then becomes how quickly and how deeply can you get into what you're doing so that when you are, when you do have those five minutes, that you're, um, you're gone into that reality. But you're right. You have a problem. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, in this case, you're right. It's a job description. Uh, would you pass the microphone back to Deborah? Uh-huh. Uh, would you say that Dharana, is that right? Dharana. Dharana uh-huh. and flow are the same thing? No, no. I mean, I don't know what the word flow means because English is an, an unspe- unspecific language. Dharana is absolute one-pointed concentration. Flow implies all kinds of other things. I mean, going from point to point, I'm not quite sure what flow would mean. Flow used to describe a state of... Oh, it's a, it's a word that's used a lot. Can anybody... Do you know what I'm talking about? Here, yeah. you've read the book. Concentration... I would say it's an aspect of flow, though there are probably other, and not necessarily as strict a definition of concentration as this, but it is a factor in it as, along with some other things. I don't think they're very directly relatable. See, the, the, the difficulty is 
people are trying to describe certain things and they, they, give, they, attach, they attach meaning to words. And it, the English word flow, I mean, it, it means the water in the tap, it means the river. It, and, I mean, I, you can feel what people are trying to say. They're talking about a certain positive state that you get into where you have intuition, you have concentration, you know, you have a, a sense of ease in what you're doing. But dharana is a very specific Sanskrit term, which means something very exact. So, flow is to dharana as superconsciousness is to samadhi. <laughs> I, since I don't, yeah, well, yes, I'll just say yes. And it's an imprecise English word that's been given meaning by um, the culture at the moment, or by certain teachers in the culture at the moment. But it, it has no ancient tradition of meaning like dharana does. All right. Um, so, let me think. Let me go on with this. What the other point that he makes here, which is a, which is a really important point, is that we should practice concentration in everything that we're doing. And if we find, if we are able to concentrate in any particular area, that's a building block of our spiritual life. I've mentioned to you at one point there was a man who was living with us who was getting a PhD in physics from Stanford, and he was uh, 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 trying to be a serious devotee. But he would talk about the fact that he would sit down with his physics problems in the morning, and then it would be night, and he would not know where the day had gone. And he was a little concerned about that. And in the, on the basis of dharana, I assured him that the ability to, to become so one-pointed, physics was the reality at the moment, but when his karma shifted sufficiently and he was able to um, really just applying that to sadhana, he would be way ahead, which is what Swamiji is admitting here about how many successful businessmen turn out to be really good yogis, even though Swami's own prejudice as a young man didn't want that to be true. He just had to admit in the end that it was true because the power of concentration and focus that was required to do one just translated over into the other. That's what Sri Ramakrishna said about the dancers and the singers that came to see him who were low-caste people in the society he lived in. But he commented that their God at the moment was art and music, but they really knew how to worship, is how he put it. And, and many people who may have a higher ideal yet don't know how to worship. So for us, in just in practical everyday life, you know, we, we, we can't, we don't spend all of our time meditating. So we need to start practicing whatever we're doing. We need to do it with that kind of energy. I remember um, somebody commented to me later at the time, I didn't even think about it, at um, Erica and Craig's wedding, the, um, the altar that they were setting up was just too small. The table that they were using, I mean, the just was out of proportion to everything that was happening. And they were starting to put it up and people were just accepting that this was going to be it. And I I couldn't see anybody else acknowledging the fact that all the effort that we were putting out, it wasn't going to work. And I just set my mind to the fact that we were going to solve the problem and sort of went ripping around the community in and out of different places, eventually finding you know, a much bigger table and taking everything off of it and dragging it over and finding bricks and concrete blocks 
behind the dumpster and loading them into wagons and bringing them over and just, no, we were not going to stop until it was done and then it was fixed and it was fixed. And afterwards, someone said to me, wow, you were so intense about that. (laughs) I sort of looked at her like, what? You know, it needed to be done. That's all. It had to be done and we're not going to stop until we do it. And there was a certain obstacle to be overcome because there was this kind of uh, confusion going on that everybody was trying to think that what we were doing was okay and it wasn't okay. It, it really needed to be changed. And we should always be like that. Swami Kriyananda was like that. He was so just determined about everything that he did. Nothing, he never did anything without absolutely full energy, no matter what, no matter what it is. It was always, if this is what we're doing, we will do it completely in this moment. And he never just did things halfway. Because that becomes a habit. And how are you training your mind? If you train your mind that whatever you do, you do it as well as it it can be done by you in that moment. And of course, that's a balanced reality. We we don't become, uh, as well as it, it needs to be done, it can be done, it should be done. We don't become crazy about it. But when we have an assignment, we we do it with everything that we've got. And then when it's over, we go on to the next. But these are this very important life lesson. Because if we imagine that we're just going to be able to meditate deeply when we're not even accustomed to putting out full energy the rest of the time, it doesn't just suddenly materialize. And it's very hard to learn it just in meditation. We have to learn it at all times. The Even if, if you, Tandava, are being drawn from point to point to point to point, it isn't so much, I mean, the, the exercise becomes a different one. It's just forgetting completely what was happening one minute ago and just being in this, in this moment now. I mean, again, that's what Swami was always like. Whenever he was with anyone, he put his full attention there. He just listened completely. And if he couldn't give it his full attention, he, he put it aside until he could. When uh, I, would, I would say to people, that would be for email, that whenever you would write to Swamiji, he would always get your letter and he would always read it. And he really would read it. He would, he would read it like this. And there would be no conversation, no matter how small the letter. He wouldn't be just kind of reading it and chatting with you at the same time. He would just be reading it and everything would stop until he finished. Then he put it down. And that's the way to live. Dharana at all times. Okay? Yeah, it's absolutely being in the moment. And that's where, with, with Tandava, when you're in a position where you think you're never allowed to concentrate, oh, you're always allowed to concentrate. It's just it's a constantly shifting point of focus. And that's a fun kind of practice, actually. Um, when I've been traveling a little bit you know, lately, that's sort of the practice that I, I get to enjoy also, which is wherever we are, this is just simply where we are. And even though I have many friends and my husband and the place that I usually live is someplace else. As much as possible, um, I try not to have any part of me um, spread out and, and just committed to something that isn't happening. I mean, it's not like you lose your friendships or don't love people or aren't connected on a more subtle level, but in the moment, what we're doing is we're just doing this. We're not doing this with the thought that, oh, I wish we could be doing that. You know, that, that's how we lose energy and have no intuition 
on top of it because we don't know where we are. Does that make sense? Okay. Swamiji gives a little kick here to how, how intellectually oriented Western education is and just how, how little attention is given to really training people to have that inner feeling about things. This is one of the ways I was starting to say earlier, we would, were talking about our school, and we were talking about how intuition is actually a very good word to associate with our school, because it's, people are beginning to appreciate the importance of it, and it also implies higher consciousness, implies inner reality, implies a, a great many other things without saying them explicitly. But when we talk about an educational system that fosters intu- intuition and intuitive learning, you're really going in the direction that our culture is trying to go. We're having a discussion this morning about how the ideas that are self-realization, you know, are, are, are drifting through our culture. And they don't necessarily have master's name on them, but the ideas are drifting in. And this whole under- beginning, very beginning understanding of the importance of intuition is one of those ideas. Just beginning to, to see the limits of, of pure reason and needing to get to some other side of ourselves. Okay? So, Swami Jesus says, if you want to succeed at anything, anything at all, he said, develop your concentration, which will help very much to bring out your latent intuition. It's just such a straight and direct... Okay? And then he just talks about the real and higher purpose of Dharan, of course, is to turn it inward in communion with the higher self. So now we will go on to dhyana, which is where dharana takes us. So he's talking about dharana on two levels, and one level is the level of spiritual life, which is about what we're going to talk about now, and the other level is how it practically applies to everything else we're doing. Okay? Yes, Tom? Can we pass the microphone to him, please? Why do you think dharna? What, why the 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 point between book two and book three? Book three being the accomp- the accomplishments, mm-hmm. and book two was sort of the sadhana, right? That's what it's called. But why do you think dharna is on the accomplishment side? Because by that point we've really begun. He he says it himself here, because we have begun to shift into inner reality. And before we were behaving properly, we were sitting in right posture, we were getting ourselves organized, we were beginning to get control over our energy, and all of those things have to do with our relationship to the external world. But once we are, are, we are morally sound enough that we're not being so agitated by our inner mm, unsettledness, we have settled our physical body, we've gained control over our energy, then all of a sudden we can begin to perceive the inner world. Because this is where concentration, the real and higher purpose of dharana, of course, is to turn it into communion with the higher self. But Swami takes the time to interpret scripture on every level. I mean, if we're just going to interpret it entirely on a spiritual level, dharana is only about concentrating on the higher self. But since scripture applies all the way through, he gives us this whole conversation about the relationship between dharana and intuition and the relationship between all of that and success in life because that's what we're all trying to do 
You know, we're not just living in the inner world. We're also trying to make our way. So, so the ability to concentrate at the level Patanjali is suggesting of here uh-huh. is an accomplishment. Yes, definitely. It's an accomplishment. And everything else was getting us ready. That's what the sadhana was. All the, all the rest of it was getting us ready to be able to do that. And now this is the fruit of all of that, is that we will now, as, as he himself says it here, um, from this follow supreme mastery over the senses, in consequence the veil hiding the inner light is removed. He's beginning to tell us that those were the last ones that then, then the mind becomes fit for true concentration. That was all the stuff that we were doing before, getting ourselves, including the last ones were, you know, pranayama, breathing, you know, inhalations, exhalations. This is you know, kriya and hong sa, or all those are all the techniques of pranayama that now give us the ability to have absolute one-pointed concentration. And that one-pointed concentration leads to, um, to actual meditation, finally. He, he, just, he, just, he defines, this is number three, um, sutra number two, dhyana, meditation, he just describes it as one thing, is concentration on higher aspects of reality. Now this is where Swamiji rants a little. <laughs> and he says, here I must confess, no translation covers the ground even slightly. All of them make it appear that even at this high point on the spiritual path, we are still groveling about in the trough of matter. He, must have, he had lots of uh, translations on his desk when he was working on this, and he didn't like any of them. Come now. The whole purpose of yoga is to take one beyond material realities. But translators <laughs> shovel out expressions like the continuous flow of cognition toward that object and an unbroken flow of thought toward the object of concentration. What object, he says. He proposes perhaps a watermelon. <laughs> now, this, are, this is what Swami describes. Swami defines this. I mean, this is the same sutra, and, and it's, it's translated as the continuous flow of cognition toward that object. Swami translates it, dhyana, meditation, is concentration on higher aspects of reality. I mean, it's, you can see it's just, it's wildly different. But what Swami's trying to say here is he says, it's, so as Yogananda put it quite simply, concentration is fixing the mind one-pointedly on one thing at a time. Meditation, dhyana, is turning that concentrated mind toward God or one of his attributes. And so what, what Swami's trying to explain to us is how elevated Patanjali is. And, he, and he's really taking us out of this world altogether, which every so often I come back to this theme and both remember for myself and say it out loud again, which is what this book um, did for me the first time I read it, when it was very first came out, was just this, this sudden profound appreciation of how irrelevant the external world is that it's really just about inner consciousness. This is why Swami is so annoyed that they're trying to make it somehow that you're still, you, there's still objects. And there's no objects here. This is meditation on a higher, higher aspects of reality, on God. We were talking also, some of us this morning, about how even as our society and our culture or certain aspects of it are trying to become more expansive in their understanding of things, 
there's still this resistance to just really understanding that the ego must be um, uh, subject to the will of God and that it is the, the higher consciousness flowing through us that is our salvation and that that higher consciousness is a different dimension and it has a different agenda and has a completely, it's a, it's a different uh, way of looking at things altogether. And that's why Swamiji, among other reasons, is so annoyed with this, um, this way of defining dhyana, which it really needs to be defined on, as we're taking our one point of concentration and we're concentrating on God or one of his aspects. Now, I know that the, the, we got into a discussion this morning, too, about the word God and so on, but all of it becomes very tiresome. <laughs> After a while, we all know what we're talking about. I feel a little like Swami about it. I've had it. Okay. The attributes of God, or ways in which we can commune with him, are, as he said earlier, eight in all. Then we go back to the eight manifestations of God. Light, sound, love, wisdom, power peace, calmness, and, Swami says, most important of all, bliss. Concentration becomes meditation when the focused mind is turned toward one of his aspects or attributes. That's the shift. Until then, it's just concentration. And, as Swami said, it can be on anything. But when all of that gathered energy, all the right living, the right attitudes of the yamas and the niyamas, everything there that's described that settles our relationship to the world and puts it in proper perspective. The physical body is settled, the energy is under control. Then we can focus, and then what do we focus on? We focus on the internal world, which is God and his attributes. And as Master said, it's much easier to experience God in, in, in his manifestations. Of course, that is, those are pure manifestations. The, there, these themes in our spiritual life, and you know, those of you who've listened to me talk for so many years, the eight aspects of God are one of those themes that have such a profound and important role to play in our spiritual progress, both in the way we relate to the external world and now they're coming back in the way we relate to the internal world. And these um, key themes are very important for us to, to constantly be coming back to because they're, they're, the, um, uh, they're, the, road, they're the, the roads that actually lead us out. And as, as I've talked about them in practical terms, if we want to be an instrument for God, we need to manifest divine qualities. And there's just such a whole host of them, it gets very confusing. But when you think about the eight manifestations of God, and we are either manifesting love, joy, peace, calmness, energy, light, sound, and, and we know what we're doing. And if we can, if we can simplify our... Um, uh, the, the problem of our consciousness and simplify it by always knowing that we can pull on one of those attributes and then we take that same understanding into meditation and we take our one point of concentration and we commune with one of the manifestations of the divine. Swami says most importantly is bliss. 
because in the end, everything else is about bliss. What makes the, all of the others beneficial is that they all lead to bliss. That's why we're attracted to them in the first place. Okay? And then he says, it's not enough merely to hear these manifestations. Um, we must become so completely absorbed in the experience that we become one with it. And that's when we, we enter truly into samadhi is when the manifestation in ourselves have become exactly the same thing. Now, do we have any questions or thoughts about that? Uh, Marilyn back here. This, this whole thing's going way over my head. But, um, like, if I'm concentrating on the computer... And I'm and I'm really focused on that, and maybe I'm feeling happy because everything's going all right. Is that is that? It's a step in the right direction. You and you know what you want to be doing is you want to be concentrating with joy, and not merely feel good because things happen to be going well. You want to be joyful in your concentration or peaceful in your concentration or powerful in your concentration. It's, it's just a way to understand how to both do your work and do it in such a way that you are an instrument of God while you're doing it. And that's why Swamiji says you have to meditate with joy if you want to feel joy in your meditation. You have to work with joy if you want to feel joy in your work. You have to work with love if you want to feel love in your work. You can be very concentrated and totally and have a terrible attitude simultaneously. So it's, it's better to have both the right consciousness as well as the right focus. And it's more with it. Swamiji gave, he traveled across the country, um, and his uh, theme years ago, he did a tour, and the, the, um, the title was The Practice of Joy. And he tried to explain to everyone that joy is an actual practice, it's not just something that happens when everything happens to align. It's a decision that you make that you're going to be joyful about what's happening. And, you know, we're going, you're going along and then something goes wrong and how do we respond to what goes wrong? Do we respond with a joyful attitude or do we become angry and upset? So it's, it's not like we can't make that joy conditioned on things going well. It has to be the attitude with which we do what we do. Just as simple as that. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. And, and it's, um, it's not effortless, but it's worth it. I had, I had a point. Oh, this is completely... I just, because I just want to tell this, because this was so funny. I, went, I was in the... Some of you heard me say this this morning, but it's part of this. I was in the temple yesterday morning, and uh, I had the, temp, the meditation actually begins at 6.30, and I went in just after 6 o'clock. And so by the time 6.30 came, I had my earplugs in. I'd been sitting there for some time. I was pretty into my meditation, and I forgot that I was in the temple. I just didn't really know where I was, and I didn't know I was in the temple. And at 6.30, I heard this beautiful, melodious, rich-sounding voice. This just started coming. I started hearing this voice. I actually genuinely thought that God was speaking to me. And it turned out to be Ram Murti who was starting the 6.30 meditation. <laughs> 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 
was a delightful, just few seconds. I mean, nothing like that had ever happened to me before. And I really thought I was hearing the voice of God. (laughs) In every uh, play we've ever done for the last 20 years, whenever we need the voice of God, we always had Ramurti play the part. He always played the voice of God coming over the speaker. But I can attest that it was really there. It relates to this ever so slightly. You know, just ever so slightly, but when I think about just the concentration and the flow of energy, you know, we do, we just lose ourselves. We forget where we are. We do it when we fall asleep. You wake up and you don't know where you are. Well, that's fair, but I thought it was much more specific than that. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, what Tom was referring to Paula's remark, I'm, uh, I'm a very good devotee and God loves me, when she was having a near-death experience. But you see, actually think about that for a minute. I was just, there's really more seriousness in what you say because that was what she really concentrated on in her life is that she had about herself, she just had this very pure feeling about herself what, what, whatever else was going on in her life, she just was always, a, she was always, she would always come back in her own nature to her own loving heart. And she wouldn't come back to the mistakes that she'd made or the things that hadn't quite gone right or the disappointment she'd had. And she had her full share. But what she would always come back to and concentrate on was that I'm a good devotee and I really love God. So when she was beginning to die... Um, seemingly, that wasn't her death, that moment, what she had habitually concentrated on is simply what came back to her. And so everything is falling away and what's left is what you usually are. You can't fool it. This is way back in 1969, probably 1967, um, when I was living in Palo Alto. And um, the people who first introduced me to the spiritual path, and we were we were all so new and so um, confused on so many levels. And this one man heard that the the last sound to go, last sense to go, is your hearing. So he had this idea that he would just put on headphones and that he would listen to the Om, you know, recording of the Om or recording of the, of the race cars or something that sounded a lot like the Om and that that would solve the whole problem. It always seemed to me that there must be something wrong with that theory, (laughs) although at the time I couldn't quite bring it up to full articulation. (laughs) But there was this idea that you could trick it, that your mind just wouldn't go. reminds me of that story of the evil man who who was a dacoit and a murderer, but he knew that if you died in um, Shiva's city in Varanasi, that you would be liberated so he moved into Varanasi and he cut off his legs so that he wouldn't be able to leave Varanasi. And then he gets in this egoic battle with someone about how, what, what kind of a horseman he is. And he claims that even without his legs, he could still ride the horse better than whoever this whippersnapper was. So he gets up on the horse and the horse suddenly runs away from him, goes to the edge of the city, throws him off, breaks his neck outside the edge of Varanasi. <laughs> 
because you just can't cheat fate. You, you, you will go wherever your consciousness is. And that's why it's, it's just stunningly important not to allow ourselves to fall into these, to become a channel for anything other than one of the eight manifestations of God. If we become a channel thinking that we're helping ourselves of our inadequacies and all the ways in which we failed and everything that we could have done better, it may all be true, but you don't want to be held back from the light because you're so busy concentrating on the darkness. Just as Swamiji says, if you make a mistake, you know, acknowledge it squarely, learn what you can from it, and then put it out of your mind as much as you can and go back to I am, a, I am a sincere devotee and I really love God. Okay, let's take a break. You know, we just move really fast through these because they're just so straightforward. And because also because I don't have that much to say. I mean, I just can't. I can't really hold forth on, <laughs> on samadhi as much as I can on delusion. <laughs> I'm better at delusion than I am at samadhi. <laughs> But I'm a good devotee and I really love God. <laughs> All right. Yes, Marilyn has a question. We can send the... Yes, thank you. I was just trying to figure out where it was before I kicked it over. I've been thinking about what's being said that you can only focus on one thing at a time, be aware of I'm going to pause for a second. Vinny, if you're not back there muting it, is this going to create a strange recording with her? No. You have another method? That's all I need to hear. Okay. Go ahead. You can only concentrate on one thing at a time or be aware of one thing at a time. You can't multitask. Uh So I'm thinking about that. Then I'm wondering if I'm feeling bliss or, or... yeah, that's the easiest one for me to think about. Bliss. And I'm doing something that's, that I'm focusing on, you know, like at the computer. Isn't that two things? Um, well, one is your state of consciousness, and the other is what you're doing. Okay, okay. Yeah. Because you can, let I me mean, think about it, you can be doing the same thing with many different states of consciousness. So your state of consciousness is independent of what you're doing. That's part of what the whole spiritual path is, is that your state of consciousness is independent of what you're doing. Somebody who's depressed can be sitting in the movie depressed. Somebody else can be sitting in the movie extremely happy. Somebody can be sitting in the movie hating the person next to them. Somebody can be sitting in the movie loving the person next to them. And they're all sitting there watching the same movie. I mean, literally, I'm not talking about the movie as an image for life, but they're all sitting there watching the same movie or digging the same ditch. But everybody has a different uh, state of mind going through it. And it's this, yeah. I think she maybe referred to that last sutra. In the last sutra that said it's, it's not enough to just... Um, well, it said you have to become so completely absorbed in the experience that you become one with it. We're talking about referring to you know those aspects like bliss. We're talking about meditation now. We're not talking about while we're working. This that's that's a description of in meditation. It is not enough simply to hear. One must become one with. So if you're in meditation, you're not concentrating on anything, except that state of consciousness. So we're, 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 there are two different realities that we're talking about there. 
Is that is that fair enough, Tandava, for what you were? Did I miss something? I may say something uh, okay. with regard to Marilyn. Um, sometimes I also feel when I concentrate on something very strongly, it really turns into joy and bliss. So the concentration and the feeling of really total, it's like a kind of freedom, like like you flying. It's a, it's a really strange kind of description. But you are totally focused, concentrated on a particular thing you do and have this feeling of bliss or freedom. or of, I, I call it flying. I'm flying. What you're talking about is by meditating deeply on any aspect of God, one loses self-awareness and becomes completely absorbed. And that great state of freedom is because one has, at least temporarily, defined oneself by the flow of energy rather than by the confining self-definition. I mean, that's why creative work, especially creative work that's done with some intuition, which is if it's done with some concentration and then it can be done with some intuition, then there is an experience of great freedom in it because you have actually broken out of the confines of self. I, I realized at some point, this, this lesson came to me in a, an interesting way when I was just 24 and was be, first beginning at my life with Ananda and I was taken into the uh, kitchen at the retreat and that became my work for a couple of years. And in that, those first months that I was working there, it was the, the kitchen that fed about 40 people who did not have their own kitchens. It wasn't like people could eat at home or eat there. It was, it was the only place where we could eat. And we, we fed everybody three meals a day. We closed the kitchen one day a week, and, during, and on the one day that we weren't cooking, theoretically people were fasting, but in fact they were breaking into the kitchen and getting food. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, during that day I would go into Nevada City and load up the truck with everything and then bring it all back so that I'd have enough to cook for the next six days. And I cooked breakfast, lunch, and dinner with very little assistance. And none of this is a complaint. I absolutely loved it. It was just total fun from start to finish. But I discovered self-forgetfulness, which is not something I had never known before. I had always, whatever I had done prior to that, I was always simultaneously conscious of myself doing it. And to use the phrase that I've used before, I was always calculating my advantage while I was doing it. Not, not in a self, self, selfish way, but my advantage as I perceived it, how to have the most fun, mostly. What would be the most fun? But I was so busy, and, and, so, and I so loved what I was doing, that I just would forget that there was an I doing it. It was just being done, and I was just in that flow of energy all the time, for days at a time. I don't mean I was in some altered state, but it was just totally absorbing. And I would joke that, you know, I hope God is in the soybeans, because it's all I'm thinking about. But I knew that it, there was something divine about it. It was selfless, it was seva, but it was because of that phrase, self-forgetful. And that's, that came to me then and has always been with me. Ah, oh, that's what we're trying to do. I mean, you can call it, you're trying to realize yourself, but what you're really trying to do is you're forgetting yourself. Because we're always so 
aware of ourselves. That's what binds us all the time. That's the cause of fear, doubt, anger, everything, is because we're always asking, what about me? Where do I fit into this picture? Am I getting what I should be getting? Are you treating me the way you should be treating me? Is the world doing what it should be doing? Am I doing what I want to do? Am I fulfilled? It's just that I, I, I. And when you really start concentrating on creative work or service or something else, you, you just don't remember that there's an I doing it. And that in itself is the freedom. That in itself is the joy because you've broken the confine. That was, that was when I began to understand that what had been motivating me from childhood was that sense of being confined. But I, I didn't have a point of reference, so I, I didn't understand that I was confined. I was just living as everybody lived. But I, I, intuish, intuitively, I knew that I was confined. But that summer of work, um, be, that beginning summer of work, was when I, I recognized that, oh, you can be free. And I learned it through seva, which is one of the reasons that seva is so powerful. Yes? Forget your little self so you can realize your real self. Yes, exactly. And seva is one of the ways that we do it. And create creativity is another. Create creative work, artistic work. That's Swami's whole book. Um, Art is a hidden messenger or whatever it's called. Art, creativity is a path to self-realization or whatever they call it now. That's what it is. It's that when you are able to concentrate one-pointedly, so one-pointedly that you have intuition, you simply move out of self-consciousness into something else. And the whole day passes and you don't even know it. And you, you know, just weeks, days pass. You, you just hardly know it because you're always outside of yourself. You're, out, you're, you're not inside of your own little tiny thing. And that's joy. By definition, that's joy. Because the opposite of joy is littleness. And the definition of joy is expansive connectedness. That's why mothers sometimes go into a state of bliss with their little babies for a while because they're so outside of themselves in the um, passionate desire to take care of those children. I mean, I've never been, uh, I've never raised a child, but mothers tell me that it lasts a couple of years, two or three years, and then all of a sudden you just kind of come back to yourself. It's partly given to you, I think, so that you can do that. But many mothers will talk about the, the sort of ecstatic beginning. And then slowly you remember yourself again. Huh. Any other thoughts or comments? Okay. So now we will go into 3-3. Three, three. When the subject, the person meditating, and the object of his meditation, God become one, that is samadhi. Look how simply Swamiji translates this. When the one meditating and the object of meditation, when the meditator and God become one, that is samadhi. I mean, as I said, I've never read any others, but how could you say it more simply than that? Swamiji has never been a fan of complexity. So often he says people are so confused they think it must be deep. (laughs) Okay. Again, translations of this sutra are altogether too intellectual and abstract. This is God we're talking about. The source of all love, bliss, and delight in the universe. Can't we get away from talking about objects of concentration? The true, quote, the true nature of the object shining forth? 
unquote. I have to say that for the sincere seeker, this sort of things, thing makes to rise one's gorge, he says. <laughs> it certainly isn't Patanjali. I love that Swami has fun. <laughs> and then he says, by meditating deeply on any aspect of God, one loses self-awareness and becomes completely absorbed in that. One who meditates on love becomes absorbed in the universe of love. On light, he becomes absorbed in the light. Um, And so on. And then he says, um, he talks about this point here, which is just a parenthetical. He becomes absorbed in that light, expanding outward beyond the limits of material space. Then parenthetically he says, yes, space too is material, Yogananda described it as a distinct vibration separating the physical from the astral universe. And I, that was, I just love that. I was meditating on that this evening. What on earth is that really, does that really mean? That we have, there's this vibration that we call space and it's, and it's, it's be, that because of that we can't see into the astral universe. Wow. So you, met, you, you merge into the light and you go past, your, your vibration moves out of the vibration of the material world. One who meditates on sound becomes absorbed with Om, and so on. And then he says, to talk or write about these things, one must be a devotee, not a scholar. He says, too much reason feeds the ego, and then you can't move toward enlightenment when you are in the ego. He says, in reason there is no inspiration, no sweetness, no overwhelming love or bliss. Patanjali was showing us the path to supernal bliss. He said what scholars may call the true nature of the objects shining forth is the final fulfillment of all our longings. Why call it a mere object as if it were equivalent uh, to no more than a chair or a table? It's a very, very, very important what he's talking about here. And interestingly, again, this was the conversation we were having this morning in, in many dimensions of it, which is this sort of wholehearted willingness not merely to have an abstract relationship with these truths, but to realize that, the, that, that this is a relationship of love. And that's really what we're working with. It's because of that that Ananda people can be so childlike and sort of free in the way that re- we relate. There's a quality um, to master's children and equality to the Ananda family, which is it's just it's a very light-hearted family because we don't look at these things as intellectual ideas. And when we start talking about these realities, we don't sit and have lots of long abstract discussions about them. We experience it. And and we don't we don't try really hard to have big abstract discussions about it. And Swamiji is saying here, Patanjali himself, he was an avatar, he was a master. And therefore he had the consciousness that he's trying to describe. And he's telling us that this is where we're going. And it's very important in our own understanding of the spiritual path, that word to be a devotee. When we were in uh, New Zealand, when we had our last weekend retreat, and we had about 30 people, we were just doing a get acquainted game and trying to do it with this group of people who are not American in their sort of easy um, spilling of their souls out to total strangers. So we just had everybody introduce themselves 
And then we ask them to give us what a one-word definition of who you are. It was actually very, it was fun. It was very interesting. You know, sometimes people use two or three words. But uh, I thought about it for a long time. Uh, and I decided that the word devotee was the word I liked the best. I mean, one could use the word disciple, but I liked the word devotee better. And it's, it's something that I have personally cultivated for all the reasons that he says right here. I'm really devoted. I'm not merely seeking truth or wanting to know like that. It's like this is a relationship of, of devotion, and a, dev- a devotion is love. This is something that I love, not merely that I follow or discipline myself to. And I, uh, I was remembering when uh, we were working on the movie, the Finding Happiness movie, and we have those scenes in there where the choir is standing up and singing. And, you know, the Ananda music is so lighthearted and so sweet if you listen to any music anywhere in the world right now, we all, many of us have recently seen The Awake, the movie about Master, which of course is a glorious movie because it's about Master and there's all this film of Master. But the, the last five or ten minutes, um, when they're really trying to bring the movie to its you know, magnificent conclusion, the choice of music is just stunningly inappropriate just shockingly inappropriate. It's, I don't, apparently the songs that were chosen are, are famous popular songs. Somebody tried to justify it to me about who they are and how people regard them or what it is. I don't really know. But the vibration was about as contrary to the vibration of an avatar as the vibration could be. It was just, it was, uh, to my ears, it was just ugly and dissonant. And, and it just went on and on. So at the end of the movie, you know, the, 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 the music is what really goes through you. So you're, you're trying to hold the image that you're watching, but that vibration, and that's the vibration that unfortunately you end up walking away with, which to my mind was uh, exceedingly unfortunate. But the Ananda music is, is, it's not merely that, you know, we're devoted to the spiritual path, but what, what I really want to say is that we are devotees. It's, it's the music of people who love and who people who are very open-hearted in the way they love and people who love in this kind of innocent enthusiasm, a lot of it, some of the songs more than others. And so in the movie, the Finding Happiness movie, we have those scenes where the choir is just with this innocent enthusiasm without guilelessly, without any um, sense of the need to appear to be sophisticated or restrained or protected, just singing out with such lightheartedness. And at the focus group where we had this random 80 um, Los Angeleans watching the movie, pretty much they didn't like the music. And they really didn't like watching the choir sing it, you know. Just watching the choir sing it. You know, there was no wild gesticulate. Well, it was a compliment, in fact. Um, but it was, it was, cinematically, we had to shift it because it was simply, it was too static a frame to just be staring at the choir singing for so long. So we took the camera off the choir 
kept the music going and did much more interesting visuals. It was an opportunity to show a great deal of the community, which is how we used it. But I've, I've shared with you at the end the three Hollywood professionals who were helping us with the movie and I were sitting together and we're talking about this and I'm conceding to them that it doesn't work cinematically. But one of them actually, just like, like we're alone and there's no recorders or cameras here, he just said to me, do you all really do that? <laughs> Did you fake this up for the film? You know, no, I said, we do that all the time. I said, dress in rainbow colors and sing these songs. Yeah, we do it all the time. Without apology, I said that. Yeah, we do that all the time because we're devotees. We're always just rejoicing in our childlike relationship to this loving reality. And we express it in rainbow colors and we express it in this... I mean, a lot of the... There aren't that many songs in the movie of the choir performing. There's a lot behind it. The music behind it is more of the nuanced music. A lot of the music that's sung is the more straightforward, joy in the heavens kind of music. Um, But in our own hearts, to really be at ease with that, it's very important as devotees. And to, to just frankly and openly and completely, I'm a devotee of God. Yes, if we're trying to communicate, sometimes we have to couch things in the right language. But there should never be any hesitation within our own selves. And we we should never be the least bit inhibited in just simply declaring that. You know, this is not an abstract intellectual thing with me. I am not trying to pass through all the stages of, of dharana to dhyana so that you know, and it means this, and it's the object of the shining, whatever. It's my beloved. That's why we say, Father, Mother, Friend, Beloved. That's why we pray. We always pray. We always, we say it like that. Because we really are in relationship. And that's what gives us our power, our freedom, and our happiness in the end. And we need to claim it with full energy. Um, or else we're missing the point. Then that would be unfortunate, you know, given all the aspiration that we have. Well, I think that might be the last word for tonight. Thank you all very much. Okay. <laughs> we, we did um, from 3 1 to 3 3. Yeah, we're in Samadhi now. At long last, at last, at long last. You know, I've mentioned to you that we'll go through up to Tuesday before Thanksgiving and then we'll stop until January.